Good morning, everyone. Um, this morning's uh, sermon is pretty thick. There's a lot of stuff in there. So we have uh, um, bold 10 inserts. If you did get one of these, I encourage you to get one. Uh, Bruce has got some. If you just want to raise your hand if you didn't get the uh, outline for today's um, sermon. Uh, it's, there's a lot of stuff in there. And uh, this should just help you to uh, just to follow along there. If you picked up a book and the very first sentence that you read said they were naked and not ashamed, what would you think is coming in the rest of the book? They aren't now, but they will be, right? You would assume that this book would be about them getting into shame and then getting rid of their shame. Well, that's the way the Bible starts out. We see the creation. We see man and woman, Adam and Eve, made. And God says, the first thing he says, he says they were naked and not ashamed. That's the first commentary that we see about people. They're not ashamed. And so, in many ways, the whole Bible is about covering our nakedness and removing the shame. And we don't talk much about shame at all. But Ed Welch, in his book, uh, Shame Interrupted, and this book is our book of the month uh, book. There's one in the, uh, in the uh, library, uh, if you want it afterwards. But in this book, he says, um, he said that in Scripture, you're going to find shame and the, uh, its words for it, nakedness, dishonor, disgrace, defilement. But you find that ten times as often as you find guilt. You find shame ten times as often as you find guilt when you read through the Scripture. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to take a kind of like a bird's eye look at what shame is. And we want to kind of see this big picture of what the Bible says about shame. And really, in one sermon, we're not going to see it all. And it's kind of like if we have the picture of shame is like this big by this big, we're just going to kind of take just one little scratch out of it and say, here's what we can see about it this morning. But we want to get this big picture of what the Bible says about shame. And before I start, let's, I'm just going to pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we just lift up this, this morning to you, Lord. We just ask that your Holy Spirit will be among us this morning. Because the topic of shame, Lord, is uh, somewhat difficult to hear. And it's difficult to talk about. And it's uncomfortable. And we don't like it, Lord. But I just pray that your Holy Spirit will come in this morning and will soften our hearts, Lord, so that we might hear what you have to say, because what you have to say is hope, Lord. What you have to say is that you take away our shame, Lord, and, we give, and you give us glory. So be with us this morning, we pray, in your name. Amen. So what a shame. We have a uh, definition, an overhead. This is the definition by Ed Welch. It's one of many definitions. But it says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something that you did, something that was done to you, or something associated with you. And you feel exposed and humiliated. To strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. Or you were treated as if you were less than human. Or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. Shame is different than guilt. They go hand in hand many times, but shame is different than guilt. Guilt lives in the courtroom, and there's a judge that says, this is right and this is wrong. It's black and white. Guilt is that way. 
Shame, however, lives among the community. It's not in the courtroom. It's in the community. And people look and say, you are unacceptable. You are unclean in your disgrace. Shame is different than embarrassment as well because we're all embarrassed, right? We're driving down the road. We're, you know, <laughs> doing this or whatever. Someone sees us and we're embarrassed, right? But it only lasts a little while and we can laugh at ourselves. But shame, however, is like never-ending embarrassment. And we can't just laugh it off. It stays with us. Shame makes us, in the Bible terms, to feel like we're naked, or we're dirty, or we're exposed, like everyone can see what it is that we are trying to hide. And it makes us feel like an outsider, that you don't measure up, or that you're worthless. And it feels public. It feels like everyone can see you. Guilt can be private, it can be hidden, but shame is always public, but it makes you want to hide. And it's a horrible feeling, no matter where it comes from, it's a horrible feeling. And the Bible says that we are naked, but we long to be clothed. Second Corinthians talks about that, how we long to be clothed. So as we look at shame, we want to know, um, if you want to write down that passage, it was Second Corinthians 5, verses 2 to 5. We're just not going to read it, but that's where it is, if you're looking for it. And it just says that we long to be clothed. So where does shame come from? We want to know where shame comes from originally, if we want to... Uh, be able to deal with this. Shame comes from three places. First of all, shame comes from us, either what we did or these shortcomings and failures that we have. So if we sin, we are ashamed of our sins, and we don't want people to find out about it. But there's some sins that just seems like they are so much worse than a normal sin. Some sin we don't mind confessing, but some sins we don't want anyone to know about. And the shame also can come from just our shortcomings, right? We just can't seem to do things that others do. We keep failing in the things that we try to do. Everything we do is poor. At the best, it would be mediocre. But either way, we're embarrassed of it. And any physical difference at all can cause us shame, especially in this TV and magazine world of perfect bodies, perfect beauty, and perfect people. And so any of these shortcomings that we have, any of these failings, any of these lacking things that we have, whatever they are, whatever makes us stand out from the crowd, whatever makes us different than everyone else, can be the cause of shame. The second place that shame comes from, shame comes, can come from what someone did to you. It can come from abuse. Whether it's physical, verbal, sexual, any kind of abuse can cause shame. This can be a one-time event or it can be an ongoing event. Shame can also come from that constant, never-ending stream of negative words that you hear. Wherever you hear those from, those negative words, that, that constant streaming of that. Or it can be because you're excluded by others. You're excluded from something in a public place and everyone knows that you are excluded of it. The third place that shame comes from. Shame comes from being associated with something or with someone else. Association is such a powerful thing because the glory of someone or something or the shame of someone or something seems to rub off on us, right? Mention that you know someone famous or that you bought a new sports car 
or that you're going to marry a doctor, right? And people look at you differently right away. There's that association with just being with someone that can, that can elevate your status in people's eyes. And then shame is the same way. Shame devalues us in other eyes and our association with those things. So there's a young woman whose father's an alcoholic. She doesn't want to bring her friends over. Because every time she does, and her dad is drunk, she does, he does something that humiliates her in front of her friends. She doesn't want to be associated with him. She doesn't want other people to know that this is my, this is my dad. But the thing about association is that we want to understand our association with Christ. And this is kind of looking ahead, but our association with Christ is one of the ways that we do battle against shame. Because we belong to Christ. Christ has adopted us. We are his, his children. And with him, we will receive honor. And we will receive glory and value and worth. And it will be public. Revelations tells us, and he uses this picture language of, of a marriage, but says that we'll be united with Christ in marriage. And there's going to be this huge feast, this huge public feast, everyone there. And it's going to be to celebrate our association with Christ are being married to Christ. And it will be that public affirmation and that association that's going to be with him. So, what do we need to know about shame? What do we need to know about shame? <laughs> Let me just stop right here. It seems like every time I go up and preach, I preach on these subjects where I have to apologize like halfway through and say, look, I know this is heavy, I know this is weighty, I know this is hard to hear, but we don't talk about it, and that's what I'm talking about, because we want to know what it is, and we want to be able to talk about it. Yes, it's hard, yes, it's difficult. All of us have felt this shame at one time or another of our lives. Some have experienced more, some have experienced less. Some have experienced from what we've done, some of us have experienced from what others have done, some of it's been our associate, but we've done it all. We've felt it all. And so we just want to talk, talk about this. So we need to know some things about shame if we're going to do battle against shame. So as Ed Welch says this, he says, shame is life-dominating and it's stubborn. And once it's entrenched in your heart and your mind, it is a squatter that refuses to leave. Right? So you can be having a great day, just a wonderful day, and you're just you know, talking and stuff. And then someone says something about something, and you have this flashback. And instantly shame overwhelms you. They're not even talking about you. They're not talking about anything at all that relates to you. But this picture comes in right away and it just takes over. And it just takes over. And you feel it right away. Another thing we need to know is that shame always talks to you and it lies. Shame always talks to you and it lies, right? It is always saying there, I can't believe what you did. You are worthless. You will never be accepted. And it's your fault. If you hadn't have done this, if you hadn't have acted this way, they would have never done that to you. Shame says you can never be forgiven for what you did. It is this voice that accuses and lies constantly. And as much as shame talks to you, shame wants you to be silent. It says you can never tell anyone, ever. Because if they ever found out, it would be all over. So shame makes you want to hide. Think about Adam and Eve, right? God created them. 
They were naked, they were not ashamed, and then they disobey God. They sin. What do they do next? They try to hide. First thing they do is they hide. They, first of all, hide their nakedness. It says they knew that they were naked and they sewed flig, <laughs> flig leaves. <laughs> I don't know what those things are, but I don't know if they were. Fig leaves, right? So they sew fig leaves together and they make themselves these loincloths. So they're hiding. The next thing that they do is they hide from God. The fig leaves aren't enough. They hear God. It says God is walking in the garden. Adam hears him and they both scramble. They scatter and they hide. And God says, where are you? Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Shame makes us hide. The other thing that we need to realize is that shame is real. Shame is real. Something really did happen. Either you really sinned, or someone really did mistreat you. Or you are associated with something or someone else. But with that understanding... That shame is real, just like sin is real. With that understanding, we need to realize that shame can be removed. Shame can be taken away. It just can't be taken away by you. Shame can be removed, but it can't be taken away by you. Who takes it away? Jesus Christ. That is the wonderful news that Jesus Christ takes us away, right? Because Jesus Christ reaches out to our shame, and he is the one that removes us. Jesus reaches out. In the Gospels, we see story after story after story of reaching out to different people. And in this New Testament Jewish culture, they considered shameful, or anyone who's shameful, someone who was unclean, sick, or childless, blind, bleeding, poor, sexually unfaithful, uncircumcised, anyone who was associated with Rome, like the tax collectors, for instance. So, these were the categories that they had assigned to shame. And so anyone who was in those categories, and Jesus is reaching out to these, Jesus is reaching out to those who are in shame. In 1 John 4, verses 1 through 41, we have the story of this woman who's at the well. So Jesus and his disciples go to the land of Samaria. They're passing through, and it says they have to go through the land of Samaria. So Samaria was a place that most of the people, most Jews avoided it because they believed that the Samaritans were contaminated, unclean people. And if you had anything to do with them, you too would become contaminated as well. Even if you talked to them, if you associated them any way at all, you too would be unclean. So Jesus goes to Samaria, says he's tired from the journey. So he sits down at Jacob's well while the others go into town to get the food. So Jesus is sitting at the well by himself and it's the middle of the day. It's the hottest part of the day in a hot country. And a Samaritan woman comes to get water. No one comes to get water in the heat of the day. They get it in the morning or at night because they're, they have to carry it and they have to walk. It's like going golfing in Death Valley in the middle of the afternoon from like two to four. It's like you just wouldn't, you just wouldn't do it. You'd, you'd golf in the morning, you'd golf in the evening, but you'd never go in the middle of the day. This woman goes in the middle of the day. The only reason she goes in the middle of the day is because she wants to be alone. She doesn't want to be seen by other people. She doesn't want to feel the stares. She doesn't want to hear the whispers. She's there because she feels like she's an outcast. 
She's had five husbands so far. She's living with someone who isn't her husband. She knows what people think of her. So she goes to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. And she gets there and she's a, she sees a man that's there. And not only just a normal man, but a Jewish man. Just one more person to look down on her. If she's trying to avoid the Samaritan women by going in the day, what is it going to be like when she sees this Jewish man who's there? She just wants to blend in. She just doesn't want to be seen by anybody. She just wants to do her thing. But Jesus reaches out to her. And Jesus invades her silent place. And he talks to her. And he asks her for some water. And she's shocked, right? She says, how on earth is it that you, a Jew... Ask me for a drink. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you even be asking me? But see, Jesus is not afraid of getting contaminated from her. In fact, it's the opposite. The opposite of being afraid of being contaminated by her, he reaches out to her and he offers her forgiveness. He offers her love. He offers her eternal life. He says, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water that is welling up to eternal life. So she's all excited. She says, give me the water so I won't be thirsty again, so I don't have to keep coming back here to draw the water. And Jesus says, go and get your husband. And in all this excitement of thinking that she never has to come back here again and get this water, he says, go and get your husband. Instantly the pit is in her stomach again. And she feels sick. She feels the weight. She wants to run and she wants to hide. If she can't come here in the middle of the day, when on earth can she come? There isn't supposed to be anyone here anyway. So in her nausea, she says, I have no husband. She thinks to herself, this is the truth. I don't have a husband now. He doesn't need to know the rest. But Jesus says something to her that must have completely blown her away. You're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands already, and the one that you have now is not your husband. How on earth could have he known? How on earth, if he known, she thinks, could have he asked me for water? But Jesus doesn't shrink away. And Jesus offers her more than water. He offers her even more, right? He tells her that God wants her. He says, the true worshipers will worship the Father the Spirit, in the spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In other words, he wants you. He's seeking you to worship him. The disciples then come back. The disciples see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman. Jesus is not afraid to be seen with her. Can you imagine that, right? She comes at the worst part of the day so that no one will see her. And here Jesus is talking to her in front of all these other people. And he's not afraid to associate with her. He's not afraid to be seen with her. Even though all his friends come back, all these, all these Jewish people come back, Jesus still stays and he still talks to her. And Jesus comes to us in that exact same way. Jesus reaches out to us in our shame. And he knows us. He knows us. And he offers us forgiveness. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed to be with you. He's not ashamed to be associated with you. He's not ashamed to be part of you. In fact, he came to the world to die for you. If he was ashamed of you, would he come to earth to die for you? Would he leave the comforts of heaven to be laughed at, to be ridiculed, to be teased, 
to be picked on, to be beaten, to be tortured, to be stripped naked, to be hung in a public place for everyone to see, to watch him suffer, and finally die. Would he do that if he didn't want to forgive you? If he didn't love you? In this picture language of the Bible, if he didn't want to marry you and spend eternity with you, would he do that? Absolutely not, right? Here on earth he suffered and he experienced shame so that we could be with him forever. See, Jesus reaches out to you and he offers you the opposite of shame. He offers you forgiveness and acceptance and love. So, what do we do with our shame? What do we do with our shame? Because do you get that part? Do you get that part that, that Jesus reaches out? Jesus sees this woman and he just, he just reaches out. It's, such, it's just such an amazing, amazing piece how Christ reaches out to us. And he does it the same way. And we see picture after picture after picture in the New Testament of him doing this, reaching out to these different people. But so we do ask ourselves now, so what do we do with our shame? What do we do with the shame that we have, right? Shame wants us to keep silent. And so we do the opposite. We speak. We speak to Jesus, we speak to others, and we speak to ourselves. In speaking to Jesus, right, we are naked before God. He sees everything. He sees all of our sins. You simply cannot hide from God. So where there is sin, you confess it. If shame is from your sin, you confess your sin. If shame is from someone else, if shame is from someone else, then listen to this closely, right? Because you need to understand this. We can sin as a result of what other people have done to us. Now make, make, make no mistake about this point at all, right? Because what they did was sin. And that wasn't your fault. And you did not cause them to sin. That is their sin alone. And one day they will stand before the judgment seat of God. And they will have to answer for every single thing that they did. And it will be a terrifying judgment day for them because of their sin. But as we look at ourselves, you need to realize that as a response of what happened, you might now be sinning because of what happened. Because perhaps anger and hatred now dominate your life. You might stay up late just imagining what revenge would be like. Or you might be short, short-tempered and judgmental to everyone who is around you. Or you might withdraw completely, right? And you might never let anyone in at all. You might constantly push people away. You might never love anyone because of what this other person does. So we need to realize that even if our shame is because of what someone else did, we can respond sinfully because of it. It's difficult to separate, but we need to separate those two things and see how am I responding now because of that. But either way, we go to Christ we confess our sins. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we accept his forgiveness. We realize that we are now clean. 
We know that he wants to be with us and he wants to associate with us. And you know, this is one of the hardest things to do, right? It's hard to accept forgiveness. It's hard to realize that you're clean. And it's hard to believe that you are clean. And yet this is what Christ says. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. But Satan through his shame, doesn't ever want you to experience that peace at all. He wants you to wallow in it. He wants you to feel bad in it forever. He wants you to feel like no one can forgive you at all. He wants you to feel like no one can accept you at all. But Jesus forgives you. Jesus forgives you and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So go to Jesus. Go to him in tears. Go to him in distress. Go to him in desperation. Luke 8, 43-48 tells the story about this woman who had this discharge of blood. This is a woman who went to Jesus. So, for 12 straight years, she had been bleeding. For 12 straight years, she had been unclean and an outclass. For 12 straight years, she had been sunned, right? Because she couldn't be in a crowd. Because if she touched someone in a crowd, they would become unclean. But here we have Jesus, and he's walking down the road, and he's surrounded by people. There are people everywhere and they're touching and they're doing this and that. And this woman comes up in the middle of the crowd and she goes through the crowd and she touches Jesus and she thinks if I can just touch the fringe of his, of his uh, garment um, I'll be clean. I'll be healed. And immediately she is healed. She goes through. She touches him. Immediately she is healed. And Jesus stops in the middle of this whole crowd, with people jostling around, he says, who touched me? He said, I felt power go out of me. Can you imagine how she felt at that point? What would the crowd do when they realized what she had done? When they realized that she had touched Jesus? When they realized that she had contaminated Jesus? When this woman saw that she couldn't hide, it says she came out trembling, and she fell at the front of Jesus. She falls down in front of him and she declares in the presence of everyone what she did that she touched him and this is what happened. And Jesus, instead of being mad and instead of embarrassing her, said, daughter your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman was one of the first people that God ever called faithful or that Jesus ever called faithful in his ministry. Because she was unclean. She was an outcast. She was ashamed. And yet she went to Jesus. She went to Jesus. And Jesus forgave her for her sins. And Jesus cleansed her from all unrighteousness. The other thing that we do is we speak to Jesus. The next thing that we do is we speak to others. So, once again, shame wants you to be silent. Shame wants you to keep everything inside. Psalm 32.3 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So, go to others and talk to them. Open up to someone. Let them know what your fears are. Yes, you make yourself vulnerable when you do this. But have faith in God, because he will protect you, Right? He's the one who does the saving. And he has given us this body. He's given us people that love each other. And he's given us the love for other people. So go to other people. Third, speak to yourself. 
Shame will always speak to you, right? And you know what it's going to say because it says the same things over and over and over again, right? But we need to ask ourselves, we need to speak to ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, what are the lies that shame has been telling me and what is the truth that Jesus says? And we need to tell ourselves the truth. We need to tell our shame the truth. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is telling yourself what God says is true. And there's a huge, huge difference. So shame says, you are unacceptable because of the way you are. Jesus says, I accept you the way you are because I took your shame and I paid the price. Shame says, you are worthless. Jesus says, you are worth me dying for you. Shame says, you have no value. Jesus says, you are so valuable that God adopted you as his own child. Shame says, no one wants to be associated with you. No one wants to be around you. Jesus says, I am not ashamed of you. I am your brother and your friend. You are part of me and I am part of you. Shame says, no one cares about me. No one cares about the way that I feel. Jesus says that he will bring you to heaven. God himself, God himself will wipe away your tears and you will never cry again. Shame says no one loves you. Jesus says God loves you so much that he gave his very own son so that you can have eternal life. So speak to yourself. Try to find those lies of shame. Listen to what they are. Listen to what shame is telling you. Just stop and think, what is shame telling me? And what is the truth that God tells me? What is the truth that Jesus tells me in these things? And then rest in your association with Christ. Like I say, just the, and we don't have time to go into this. This would be a wonderful sermon in itself, just understanding when the Bible says in Christ. I don't know how many times it says the words in Christ, but just over and over and over. And if we could just understand that, and we certainly don't have time to unwrap it now, but just our association. You know, it's just like, there's like those other things. It's like if you know someone famous and stuff, you're just instantly elevated from, you know, from that. And that's kind of like a false elevation, right? It's not really like a true elevation. You know, I can say, oh, I know someone who knows someone who knows someone. And there's almost that sense that we this. But this is a true, valuable association because Christ says, I'm your brother. Christ adopts us. God does. We're that association with that. So, and then the other thing is look to heaven. Look to the outcome, right? Because one day you'll be pure and holy before God. This is what Jesus Christ himself did. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Jesus Christ himself endured this because of the joy that was set before him. And he has eyes set before him. So one of the things that we do is we set our eyes on heaven. And we set our eyes on the joy that is set before us. So what do we do for others who feel ashamed? What do we do for others? We reach out to them. We love them as ourselves. We are to carry each other's burdens, right? We're to encourage each other. We're to build each other up. We're to minister to each other. But here's what happens, right? We see someone's going through the hard time and we understand that it's shame. If we, maybe we don't even understand that part. We can just tell something's there. But even if we were you know, uh, discerning enough to tell it was shame, we would feel like we wouldn't know what to say. 
Right? What do I say to them? I don't even know what to say to them. Just be with them. Weep with those who weep. I heard on the radio just this last week, and maybe some of you else did if you listen to Christian radio, but in the middle of a show, uh, there, was two, it, there was these two women who had both lost, lost infants, lost children. And they were sisters, if I remember the story right. And they said, you know who helped them best walk through those? They said, were the ones who came and didn't try to give an answer, but simply sat with them. The ones who helped the best were the ones who were just with them and just sat with them. And so, as we help people know we might not know what to say, but us just being there is going to help. And what we want to do during that time is to point them to Christ. Because Christ is the one who removes our shame. Christ is the one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Not only does he cleanse us from our unrighteousness, but he cleanses us from that unrighteousness that was done to us by other people as well. So, here's just a picture of how we can reach out and what it looks like. And Doug King was telling us the story at men's, uh, men's uh, prayer breakfast this last Saturday. So, back around the late 60s, early 70s, 69 or 70, uh, Doug went to this conservative church. And uh, the pastor was telling this story. He said one Sunday morning, he said, uh, the... Um, um, I looked at my notes, I lost my place. So, so here's what happens. Doug's telling us the story. It's Friday night, Friday morning, men's prayer. I can't even get that right. Okay, we have breakfast in the morning. Friday morning, Doug's telling us. Okay, so he goes to this church. It's a real conservative church, right? 69, 70, right around there, right? And one morning, the church is full. All the pews are filled like this. Service already started, and this guy with long hair comes in. And he's this hippie. And he's a hippie in a time when people are looked down most are looked down by most people. This is the late 60s, remember, early 70s. So the hippies would have been looked down by all of the you know, conservative people like that. And it appeared that he probably hadn't taken a bath for many days as well. He comes in the church, he looks around, and he can't find a seat anywhere at all. So he walks up, walks up, and sits down right in the front of, in front of the pulpit. And he just sits down there. And so everyone stares at him, right? And they don't know what to do with this guy at all. He's this dirty, long-haired hippie who's sitting in the front where no one sits at all. But there's an old man in a nice suit with a cane. And he gets up from his seat and he slowly makes his way down towards the front of the auditorium. And leaning on his cane, he sits down next to this hippie. He sits down next to this hippie. Now, I don't know if this hippie felt ashamed. We don't know. He certainly could have, right? He had the criteria to feel shame, right? And, and in fact, let me just stop right there, right? So, because I didn't mention this before, but all those things that cause shame or can cause shame don't necessarily cause shame. Because some things can happen and we can go right to Christ and it doesn't causes shame or sometimes just merely our demeanor something will happen to us that won't cause shame but it can happen to the next person can cause great shame and so the shame is elusive it's not like this black and white thing right sin says if you steal it's a sin right shame is just kind of kind of different than that so you might do something so I go I don't really Get why you can be ashamed of that. It's no big deal. And the other person might feel great shame. So it's even harder to put your hand on than, you know, than other things. But anyway, so back to the story. We don't know if this hippie was, was shamed at all, but he had the criteria, right? He looked 
different than everyone. He smelled different than everyone, right? He couldn't hide his differences at all. And he's sitting at the front. Everyone is staring at him. Every single one is, is looking at him, right? But this old man with his cane, he goes up and he reaches out to him. He wasn't afraid to be associated with him. He wasn't afraid to touch him. He wasn't afraid to be seen with this guy in the middle of church, sitting down, cross-legged. I don't know if the old guy could have been cross-legged or not. I'm <laughs> trying to use my imagination as I talk. That picture of the hippie sitting cross-legged. I'm like, oh yeah, the old man's sitting cross-legged. Well, he's got a cane. He's probably not sitting cross-legged, right? <laughs> so, all right. Just a glimpse in the way, I think. Um, but anyway, so, so this guy is down here. And he's sitting with her, right? He's reaching out. He's not afraid to be seen. He's not afraid to be associated. He's not afraid to, you know, to be with this guy, right? And this is what we are to do. We are to be like that old man who does that. We're to be like the old man who reaches out. Why? Because Christ reaches out to us. In our shame, in our looking different and smelling different and being different and everything else, Christ comes down and he reaches out to us, right? And so we are to do the same thing. We are to love them as Christ loved us. You know what the thing about shame is? That this isn't the end of the story. The greatest thing is the end of the story. That's why it's, that's why it's so wonderful. So God's forgiveness is so complete that he calls us to do a couple of different things. Number one is he calls us to witness to people around us. He calls people who are ashamed to stand up and to witness to other people because of what he does. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well, right? After talking to Jesus, she goes back to Samaria. And she says, she goes back to her people and she says, come and meet this guy. He told me everything that I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? How hard was it for her to go back to the city? And he told me everything I did. These people already know what she did, right? And to stand in front of those, you know, and, and I mean, she's not going to want that attention on her, right? They know the rumors. And yet she's willing to stand up and say, he told me everything I ever did. And she witnesses to these people. She goes up and she witnesses to these people. And they believe her. They believe what she says. And because she believes him, Jesus stays. Remember the Jewish people won't even go through Samaria? Jesus stays another two days in Samaria because of this woman and her telling the other people about him. The next thing God does is God calls us to love and to build up those around him. Remember the Apostle Peter, right? He denies Jesus three times. He denies that he even knows him, right? And the very last time that he denies Jesus... Jesus is looking at him when he denies him. And he sees Jesus seeing him, denying him. And the Bible says that he wept bitterly because of it. Peter is ashamed. What does Jesus do after the resurrection, though? He makes breakfast for him. He eats with him. And he tells Peter, feed my sheep. Three times he tells him, go out and feed my sheep. God calls us to do the exact same thing as to feed our, his sheep. So the band can come up as we uh, close here. So like I was saying the end is the greatest part of this story, right? Because our story begins in shame, but it ends in glory. Shame and nakedness begin in the Garden of Eden. And we are longing our whole 
lives to be clothed and to be accepted. And our journey ends in heaven. In heaven, we will no longer be naked, but we will be fully and beautifully clothed. Listen to Revelation 19. It says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen that is bright and pure. In heaven, we will no longer be ashamed. In heaven, we will be pure and we will be holy because of what Jesus has done for us. We begin in shame, but we end in glory. Father God, we come before you now. And Lord, we just look at you. Lord, with the eyes of people who have felt shame, who have experienced shame, whether it was something from we, something we did, something that someone else has done to us, or there was from some constant criticism that we've heard all of our life, whether our shame comes from our association with other people, with other things, from that one person that we never talk about. Lord, wherever it is, we come to you now, Lord, and we look at you. Lord, we bring you our shame. And Lord, we just confess our sin. And Lord, we know that you are faithful and we know that you are just. Lord, you forgive our sins. And Lord, you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I just pray right now, this week, that we'll be able to hear the lies that shame tell us. That we'll be able to hear the truth that you, O Lord, tell us. That we might uh, revel in our association with you. That we might be able to uh, defend ourselves against shame by speaking the truth, Lord. May we this week call on you over and over and over again. Lord, I just pray, Lord, just for clean hearts, Lord. I pray for the joy of our salvation now, Lord. And I just thank you, Lord, for the outcome, Lord. One day we will see you in heaven. One day our shame will be wiped clean. One day our tears will be wiped away forever, Lord. And we will be with you and we will live with you forever. Lord, let that be our hope. Lord, let that be our guiding light. Let that be the thing that we look for this week, Lord, and every day. And Lord, we just praise you. And we just thank you, Lord, that you wipe away our shame, Lord. That you give us glory. That you accept us. That you love us. That you forgive us, Lord. That you call us our brothers. That you adopt us, Lord. We just praise you and thank you for this. In your precious name we pray. Amen.